My name is Adam, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, and it's uh, wonderful to be together and to have you with us today. Today we are continuing the sermon series that we kicked off last week in the book of Acts. Now you might remember we said last week Acts is like Jesus the sequel. It's Jesus continued. It tells us the story about what happened next after Jesus ascended to heaven and returned to the Father. Last week, we looked at the events of chapter 1, and we saw that before Jesus returned to heaven, he gave the apostles a promise to send another helper, the Holy Spirit. Today, in chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Now, let me uh, set it up this way. I I read a book earlier this year called The Triumph of Christianity, How the Jesus Movement Became the World's Largest Religion. It was written by a historian and a sociologist, and he wanted to understand how Christianity, which began as this obscure, marginal Jewish sect, how it came to be the world's largest religion. And so he looks at the story from its beginnings all the way through to its present day, and he pulls out some things that he thinks explains the success of the Christian faith. So, for example, he uh, points to the practical care that Christians would show to their unbelieving neighbors. He looks at their acceptance and their empowerment of women in a day when that was not common. He talks about their willingness to take risks and to make sacrifices to share the gospel with others and, and so on. There's some of the reasons that Stark gives to explain the rise of the Christian faith. And they're all wonderful and legitimate reasons, but biblically speaking, the answer is far simpler. We really see the answer to this question in the passage that we're looking at today, which tells us about an event that we know as Pentecost, when God poured out His Spirit upon His people. This is what uh, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says about Pentecost. He says, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, Luke clearly intends to describe something that launched a great movement, as a fleet of ships is launched by the strong wind that drives them out to sea, or a forest fire is started by a few small flames. He intends to explain how it was that a small group of frightened, puzzled, and largely uneducated men and women could so quickly become, as they undoubtedly did, a force to be reckoned with right across the known world. Pentecost helps us to understand the existence of the church. I mean, how do you make sense of the fact that the Christian church exists to this day? And not just exists, but continues to grow. How does a movement that began with 120 people, not many well-educated, not many well-traveled, Many had not even traveled beyond their hometown. Not many charismatic leaders. And yet today, this movement has 2.3 billion people all over the globe, just over 2,000 years later. How do you make sense of the fact that this ordinary group of people overcame and outlasted the Roman Empire and every other empire since then? How do you explain that? What about, more recently, China? 
The fact that they tried to kick out all missionaries, they tried to get rid of all pastors, they tried to stamp out the church. But instead of being destroyed and decimated, the church exploded. Today, there are an estimated, and it's a rough estimate, but there are an estimated 100 million Christians in China. What could possibly generate this kind of movement? And what could possibly hold it all together? The answer, biblically speaking, is Pentecost. The reason the church is alive and thriving today, the reason it's grown so rapidly, spread so widely, endured such intense persecution, enjoyed such extensive influence, it's not because of our ingenuity, our strategic plans, our brilliance, our eloquence. It's because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because God's ordinary people, people like you and I, received God's extraordinary power to carry out God's worldwide mission. The Spirit of God lit a flame that has not and will not be extinguished. And so the book that I mentioned, Rodney Stark's book, it's 700 pages long if if you'd like to read it one day. It's It's a really good book, but it probably could have been a lot shorter. The triumph of Christianity, the reason the church has gone to the ends of the earth is because the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the people of God. And this is why Pentecost is one of the most significant days in the storyline of the Bible. One of those significant events in the unfolding of human history. It helps us to understand what we've seen in history and it helps us to understand what's going on around us. And yet, if if we're being honest, we'd also admit that Pentecost can be, and often has been, misunderstood and misapplied. And and if we get Pentecost wrong, it, it can lead to wrong expectations and misaligned priorities. And so it's important that we look carefully and closely at this passage today to see what God is saying to us through it. And so to do that, I would like to just ask two simple questions today. Number one, what happened at Pentecost? And then number two, what is the significance of Pentecost? What happened? What are the details? And then number two, what's the significance? Why does it matter? So let's begin with number one, what happened at Pentecost? Now originally, you might not realize this, before it was about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. In fact, it was one of the three main Jewish festivals, Passover, Tabernacle, and Pentecost. The word Pentecost literally means 50th because it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. And it was a celebration of the harvest. They were an agricultural society and so they would celebrate the harvest season. And many people from all over the ancient world would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. The the population of Jerusalem would be as, as much as five times what it normally is. Many people from many different nations. And this is the context, this is the background of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. And this is what we read in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now the they there are the apostles and the other followers of Jesus. There's probably about 120 of them, which means they were probably all together in quite a large place. It might have even been a public place, possibly in the temple, because later on a crowd will gather around them. Either way, they're together and they're waiting. And at this time, it's been 50 days since Jesus' resurrection. 
Remember, Jesus died at the time of Passover. He then appeared to the disciples for 40 days. And then before he returned to heaven, he said to them, go back to Jerusalem and wait there for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they've now been waiting for 10 days. And so they're probably a little bit nervous. They may be a little bit excited. Maybe by this point, they're even starting to have a few doubts and to, to wonder if this is even going to happen. They're together, they're waiting, they're praying, when suddenly the moment they've been waiting for arrives. The Spirit of God is poured out upon them. Now, we're not really told what they felt in that moment, but we are told what they heard, a sound like a, a rushing wind, a violent wind. We're told what they saw, tongues of fire coming down, or what looked like tongues of fire to separate on each person. And we're told what they said. They began to speak in other tongues. So the arrival of God's Spirit is accompanied by these external signs, and each of these signs are significant. So the wind and the fire, for example, they reveal to us the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, wind and fire are powerful, aren't they? If you've ever been caught up in a big storm and, and, and you live in Queensland, so you, you definitely have at some point, you know how powerful wind can be. If you've been caught in a bushfire, you know how powerful fire can be. They're powerful and so is the Holy Spirit. But wind and fire also symbolize something more. You see, wind and fire are used throughout the Bible to symbolize the presence of God. You see wind, for example, uh, the imagery of wind in Ezekiel 37, that the valley of the dry bones. We see the imagery of fire, especially in the book of Exodus. I mean, how does God appear to Moses? The burning bush. How does God lead his people through the wilderness? The pillar of fire. What happens when God descends on Mount Sinai after the giving of the law? He descends in fire. This is saying to us, the wind and the fire, that God has arrived. But there's something unique that, that happens here at Pentecost. You see, when the fire comes into the room at Pentecost, it separates onto each person present. It appears like a flame over each person's head. And the point is that God's presence is now poured out on all believers. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come upon certain individuals for certain tasks. God's presence was confined to a certain place, like the temple. But in this moment, there is a significant shift. God's Spirit is now poured out upon all believers. God's presence is no longer confined to just one place, but is present in the lives and in the hearts of all His people. This is why in the New Testament, the church, which is not the building, but the people of God, the church is described as the temple of God the very dwelling place of God. And incidentally, this is partly why Christians don't go on pilgrimages. This is why we don't go on special visits to sacred sites. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to Jerusalem and other significant biblical sites. It's wonderful. I've done it myself. But there's nothing inherently holy about these places because they're not where God dwells. God dwells in and among His people. It's a profound truth. All believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's what Luke goes on to say in verse 4. 
It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So when God's Spirit arrived, there's not only something they hear, the wind, there's not only something they see, the, the tongues of fire, but we're also told there's something that they begin to say. They begin to speak in other tongues. Now, what are these other tongues? What exactly was being said? What, what are they saying? Well, it wasn't nonsense or gibberish. It wasn't a special prayer language. It wasn't even the result of having a little bit too much to drink in the morning, which is what they're accused of later. No, it was other recognizable languages. I mean, the word tongue literally means language. It's like when we say mother tongue. We're talking about language. This is genuine, recognizable languages. And we know this is true because those who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, those who had come from all these other nations, they hear their language being spoken, not by someone from their nation, but by Galileans. Now, on that day, Galileans were rednecks, hillbillies, bumpkins from a backwater town. And yet here they are speaking their language fluently. Now, Luke gives us a list of these nations in verses 9 to 11, and you can see from the map on the screen that they came from all over the ancient world, from different regions and backgrounds and, and, and ethnicities. It was a multinational, multilingual crowd. And yet they say in verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, a few weeks ago, we sang the blessing in five different languages, English, Dutch, Samoan, Filipino, and Afrikaans, and it was just beautiful, wasn't it? Some of you even got to hear the song in your mother tongue. But imagine with me for a moment if it was a little bit different. Imagine if Emma did not sing in English, but she sang in Korean. Imagine if Penny, who's Samoan, imagine if he sang in German, or, or Porky in Swahili, or Trisha in Russian, or, or Cheryl in Hindi. I mean, that would have been something else. And that's kind of what's going on here at Pentecost. Those who don't know the language are speaking it fluently. And I guess the question is why? Why did God choose to do this on this day? Why did God choose to empower his people to speak other languages? And the answer really is to, to show us our unity in the spirit, our oneness as God's people, which transcends language, culture, and all other barriers. And it's to show us the nature of our mission, which is a worldwide, multi-ethnic, multinational mission. And what Jesus said, it is to make disciples of all nations. It is to go, remember we heard last week in Acts chapter 1, to the ends of the earth. In fact, for a long time, scholars have considered that Pentecost, the blessing of Pentecost, is the reversal of the curse at Babel. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11? Now at Babel, you have proud humans trying to, to reach up to God. At Pentecost, you have God graciously descending to humans. At Babel, languages are confused and people are scattered. At Pentecost, languages are understood and people are united. 
because a new day has dawned in God's plan of salvation. And God is now at work in the world through the message of the gospel, through the power of his spirit, to draw together a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Revelation 7. It's a worldwide mission. And this is exactly what Pentecost is about. It's about the arrival of God's presence. The spirit of God is poured out on all believers, and it's about the nature of our mission, which is to go to the ends of the earth. And so this is what happened at Pentecost, but this leads us to our second and final question, which is what is the significance of Pentecost? Why does it matter? Now, understandably, on that day, there were some shocked reactions to all that was going on. We read there in the passage that some in the crowd were utterly amazed. Some made fun of them. Others were bewildered and perplexed. In other words, they had questions. And I'm sure many of us have some questions as well. And so I'd like to just touch on a couple of those right now. And I think perhaps the the first and greatest question when it comes to Pentecost is this. Should our experience be their experience? Should we expect to experience the same things? When we receive the Holy Spirit, should we hear a rushing wind? Should we see tongues of fire? Should we speak other languages? Now, the short and I think simple answer is this. We should expect to receive the Spirit, but not in the same way. See, Pentecost is a unique event in God's unfolding plan of salvation. Like the cross of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus, these events are not common, not ordinary, and not to be repeated. They are special, unique, significant events that become the foundation for our everyday lives. Let me put it like this. Pentecost is not like breakfast. It's not something that happens every day. Pentecost is more like a wedding feast. It's something that happens once, but that has ongoing significance for our daily lives. I mean, think about the imagery of a wedding. Every day of your marriage is not your wedding day. I was going to say that might be nice, but that would just be exhausting. I mean, you do have that special day, that unique day, that unusual day, but you don't repeat it. Because that day serves as the foundation for your ongoing life together. And this is true of Pentecost and many other significant events in the Bible. We shouldn't expect them to be repeated, but we should live in light of them. And what we know for Pentecost is because the Spirit has now been poured out, you and I can right now receive the Holy Spirit. And I guess that leads to the next question, which is, well, how and when do we receive the Holy Spirit. And again, the the answer of the Bible uh, to these questions is quite simple. How do you receive the Spirit? Through faith in Jesus. When do you receive the Spirit? The moment you place your faith in Jesus. Now, obviously, it was a little bit different for these believers in Acts chapter 2. There was a bit of a gap between them placing their faith in Jesus and receiving the Spirit, but they lived at, at a unique time in history. They lived between the overlap of Jesus' ministry on earth and the pouring out of the Spirit from heaven. And so there's a bit of a time lag. But that's not true for us. The moment we trust Christ, we receive the Spirit. This is why Ephesians 1 says, when we believe, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 3 says that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And even later in chapter 2 here, Peter will say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Jesus, you have received the Holy Spirit. You might not know exactly when that happened. You might not have heard a, a rushing wind. You might not have seen tongues of fire. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have received the power, the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this means you and I are now called to pursue more of the Spirit's influence in our lives. To, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. To desire the gifts of the Spirit. To experience the comfort of the Spirit. To follow the leading of the Spirit. To respond to the conviction of the Spirit. To overcome temptation through the Spirit. To ask for boldness from the Spirit. To rejoice when the Spirit illuminates God's Word for you. And to serve with the strength that the Spirit provides. You and I can and should pursue more of the Spirit's influence in our lives. Because along with the salvation of God, the Spirit of God is the greatest gift that you can receive. And I hope that some of us, if we're not already, that today we will come to appreciate the gift of the Spirit. That will desire more of the Spirit in our lives. Because after all, we cannot move forward apart from the Spirit. We can do nothing of lasting value without the Spirit. I love what Ray Ortland says about this. He's a pastor from the States who I know I quote quite often. He says, The Spirit of God is not a performance-enhancing drug for Olympic Christians. <laughs> the Spirit of God is the indispensable necessity for any real Christianity at all. Or I like what John Stott says in his commentary. He says, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. No spirit means no life, no truth, no unity, no growth, nothing. Just powerless religion and dead churches. But thank God that this is not our story. Thank God for Pentecost because Pentecost tells us something very different. It tells us that we're not alone. That God has poured out his spirit into our hearts. We're not dead but alive. We're not alone but empowered. It tells us that we are part of the story that we are caught up in the aftershocks of Acts 2, that we have received the Spirit to be witnesses to Jesus. And it tells us, perhaps more than anything, that God is able to do in and through us more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Let's not put limits on what God might be able to do in our lives. Let's not tell God what He can or can't do. Instead, let's ask God to do what only He can do. You know, Tim Keller moved to New York City in 1989 to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Now, New York City is probably one of the hardest places in the world to start a church, surely. But he says, as they got started, something began to happen. This is what he writes. He says, the gospel, the message about Jesus, seemed brand new, sleepy, and nominal Christians 
awoke with a start. People got converted every week. The air was charged with electricity. Every decision that the leaders made turned out to be wise. Everyone performed above and beyond their gifts and abilities. That's the spirit at work. We can't control it, we can't manufacture it, but we can do what God has called us to do, to worship him, to preach Jesus, to love one another, and we can ask God to do what only he can do, to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to bring renewal and revival to our lives and to our churches. So what's your response to Pentecost? Are you amazed by it? You should be, because it tells us that God does not demand that we climb up to him, but God has graciously descended to us. That God has sent his son to save us, and God has now poured out his spirit to fill us. We have everything we need, now and forever. So we're going to close in just a moment by singing the song, The King, uh, King of Kings tells the story of what we believe, and in verse 4, it refers to Pentecost, and this is what it says. It says, Then the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free, for the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. This is the glorious good news of Pentecost. The spirit lit a flame that cannot be extinguished. The gospel will never be stopped. The freedom we have in Christ will never end. And the love of Christ will be ours forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing kindness to us. We thank you that you do not demand that we reach up to you, but you graciously descend to us. You've graciously come to rescue us, to save us in the, in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. And you've poured out your spirit to fill us so that we might know your love, your nearness, your strength, your comfort. And so Lord, where we have drifted from you, where we have experienced the, the hardening effects of sin upon our hearts. Lord, would your spirit soften us and speak to our hearts today? Would you renew us? Would you revive us? Would you set our feet upon the rock once again? Would you fill our hearts with your spirit afresh so that we might move forward into all that you have for us? to the deep joy that it is to know you and to belong to you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for this final blessing before we sing King of Kings together? Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Amen.